Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Wine Down with Kev. Party people in the place to be. I am so amped today. Uh, I have a wonderful guest, a beautiful guest, highly, highly intelligent guest. Uh, she's amazing on so many levels. Um, Mrs. Nikki Murphy. Thank you so much for that warm introduction. I'm truly flattered. Yes, 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 I'm yes. I'm so happy to be here. It's exciting to be able to cut up with you for this, <laughs> for this time. Well, so I'm we, excited. We definitely are going to cut up. We definitely are going to have some, some fun. So a full disclosure, we have history. I know Nikki. Uh, she's a friend of my son's, but she is not here on any platonic basis, she is here on more than her own merit. So we're going to jump into it. So your self-described bio on IG, let me see if I did my homework and got it right. You describe yourself as poet, mm-hmm. author, yeah. real estate investor. Yeah. What am I missing? I forgot a couple of things. Entrepreneur, say that, say that, say that. <laughs> so let's get away from your self-described bio. I'm also <clears throat> diversity and inclusion. That's yes. what I missed, yes. diversity and inclusion. Now, we're going to have yes. some fun with that diversity and inclusion because you talk diversity and inclusion, but then you posted some funny stuff that we're going to laugh about. <laughs> you talked about being on a, uh, being on vacation and uh, doing stuff that some uh, folks don't always do. Yes. So, so yes. let's let's just let's just have some fun. Let's start there. Let's, let's start in the middle and we'll work our way <laughs> around um also a uh, beautiful wife mom uh shout out shout out the hubby and shout out to yes. your beautiful child my husband of seven years now dana murphy and i also have a five-year-old soon to be six year old son Jaden murphy and a bonus son who's 15 deshaun murphy outstanding i love it i love it so you and your beautiful family are fresh back from vacation where'd you go Oh, we went to Dominican Republic. To the DR. Yes. To the DR. How was that? One of those places that's like free to go for COVID during yes. the COVID time. We'll so. take it. We'll take it. Yeah. We got to get beautiful. out. We got We got to breathe. We got to yes. have some fun. <laughs> Let's talk about the activities. What did you do when you were there? So when I was there, we did um, an excursion where we went zip lining. I zip lined for the first time. Okay. I mean, it was... It was a lot for a first timer. Five circuits, I mean, over countryside, like this jungle area. It was, it was insane. My six year old or five year old did it as well. Oh my! My husband, yes. Yeah, so we were the only black people. And and, and and what you posted? Let's just keep it a buck with the people. Yes. You said you're out there, and we're doing white people ish out here. That's not yes. for us. We don't zip line. Oh my gosh, well, we do zip line. But what happened was. There's what had happened was. Right. Go ahead. What happened was there was this group of like 20 or so people, and all of the black people okay. set out. <laughs> we played the, the bench line, on this one. Yes, they were like, oh, no, we, we're going to skip this one. We'll get oh, y'all, my. you know, we'll, we'll come back on the buggy ride. Yeah, so I was like, yeah. Okay, whatever. So we were the only black. I'm not, I'm not mad at you, so. <laughs> People out there, we're going to talk diversity and inclusion. I have a broad group of friends. Um, I do a lot of uh, that. I play golf recently, all of that stuff. But heights I struggle with. So yes. help me with the heights. What sort, of, what sort of height and what sort of depth are we talking? How far above uh, ground were you? We were 100 
plus feet in the air. Ah. Yeah, long zip lines. Oh my! Very long. So it was. It was a lot. I mean, I get why a lot of people sat it out. <laughs> to be honest. But I'm not afraid of heights. You're good. So, you know, for me, and also my husband was doing it. My five-year-old was doing it. He's in okay. mine before. Okay. Nothing like this. So you got the courage so from them. I got the courage from them. I was looking around like there's none, no other, you know. Okay. Black people Nobody else this. on the home team. So, <laughs> so, so going forward, so people listening yes. to this podcast or watching it. it, would you encourage more of them to do it, or I do we belong would. on the bench? No, it was so much fun. Beautiful. Yeah, I would definitely do it again. So definitely, even if you're the only one, still do it out there. Yes, and do it. I have a saying about that: if you're the only one in the room, you're in the right room. Yeah, you're in the right room. If you're the only one, you're in a room where you're navigating new territory, and be comfortable with it. And let them be comfortable with you. So it's it's yeah. a good thing. Been but many times, time. many, many times. So um your your journey, uh let's let's talk about being the only one, your your corporate path. Yes. Um talk about some of your corporate experience. Okay. So I started out of college at Deloitte. So I was yes. hired by one of the big four accounting firms. I worked there for almost ten years um and went up through the ranks. I was often the only one. I was first-generation college graduate in my family. Yes. Um, So I didn't have anyone in my family that had been in a corporate career or anything like that. So I was really navigating corporate life on my own. Yes. Um, Was successful in it. Yes. And didn't enjoy it, though. Uh, Well, I I have to tell you that I was a big fan of yours um, just because of what you did and how you did it, and where you came from. So, audience, uh, Nikki is an alumni uh, from my hometown, Wine Dance, 11798, Wine Dance Warriors, yes. stand up. Stand up. You know, top of the class, In right the at the top building. of the class, yes. uh, 2004, two class of 2004, stand up, shout Nikki yes. out. <laughs> and um, you turned growing up in Wine Dance, first college graduate in your family. Mm-hmm. You start out at Stony Brook. You graduate from NYU. Yes. How many years in each place? Two years in each place. I was determined to graduate on time, even though I was transferring. Okay. I took 18 credits at Stern School of Business and worked a job because I always had to work while I was in school. And I made it happen. And you made it happen. You made it happen. 18 (laughs) credits is not a light workload. Not easy to do at NYU and to work. So the immediate question that pops into my mind, I know where NYU is at. Mm -hmm. I know it's in the village. I know you have that incredible park there. And you got a million distractions. How in the world did you do your work (laughs) and graduate from NYU? Were you just misstudious or did you have a good time? Oh, I always have. (laughs) (laughs) That's not even a question. So I definitely, I think what helped though, at Stony Brook, there were parties every week. Okay. Thursday, Fridays, sometimes Saturdays, but mostly Thursdays or Fridays. So I went to parties every week at Stony Brook. At NYU, there weren't that many parties. Okay. So I was able to keep up (laughs) with all the parties that were happening and still not sacrifice anything. But I was very strategic about how I laid out my schedule, how I did my work, you know, having a job that was in an office where I could kind of 
do a little homework on okay, the Okay, I got it. But I made things happen so that I, I'm not a workaholic. So if I can take off four hours and go to the club and then come back and if I have to study. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I'm, you can I'm do that. Happen. You yeah. can. Now, now, there's another part of that plan. And if you go to the yeah. club, you got to balance your intake so you're still in a right. homework state of mind well, when you get back. Time I don't do homework after. <laughs> I'll wake up early the next day. But whatever I had to do, I would get it done. You, you, you did that. You yes. did the thing. So Suffer from FOMO. Fear of missing out. So I'm always Fear of missing out? I love that. FOMO. Oh, that's new for there. me. FOMO. Fear of missing out. That's brand new to me. I've never heard that. Everybody else is probably familiar. I'm probably late to the party with that. So you talk about, then there's a, you know, people listen to this from other states. There's a big difference. Stony Brook is in oh, eastern yeah. Suffolk County. It's a very, it's a beautiful campus. Yes. It's very large. But it's isolated. So the only people coming to Stony Brook parties are students on campus. Mostly. Mostly. A yeah. couple of people. Hey, I've been, I've been there yeah. back in my day and my time. But NYU, that's a different animal. That's Because why. it's not a campus. It's New exactly. York City is your party background. Exactly. So for um, at NYU, this is also the reason why there weren't as many parties because people didn't feel the need. I was at a closed campus, so everyone felt the need to like have a party at Stony Brook and such. But at NYU, New York City is your That's your campus. campus. That's the campus. So you go out with your friends. You don't really go to like a campus party or, or such. So I was going out with my friends sometimes, but I had also was just building my network of friends. Okay. And my friends were all in the business school as well, so they were pretty studious as well and knew they had to keep their grades up. So it wasn't a party all the time, I got it. Everybody, everybody, anyway. everybody, 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 yeah. everybody, everybody was doing what they were supposed to do. Yeah. So you graduate NYU, yeah. similar to what you did in Wine Edge, right near the top of the class? Oh, no, no, no. Not, no, not the not same right thing? <laughs> not that? It was good. It was good. But I'll tell you something. When I first transferred to NYU, my very first semester, I did... I don't know if I, I damn near failed. Okay. Just, okay? just talk. We're okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I, uh, for the first time in my life, I gotten like C's, you know, I like, I was literally like, okay, I had a 2.5 GPA. All of my GPA from Stony Brook doesn't count. Okay. Here. So I started with a 2.5 GPA that first semester and I ended up working my behind off. Okay. To graduate. Okay. You know, getting 3.7s the rest of the semester. Let's go. Right? So I was. I was really uh, suffering from imposter syndrome when I'm when I transferred there. Because okay, it was like I was a very very small population of Black people, right? And the Black people that were there were usually from two parent homes, you know, okay. second generation or their parents, you know, went to college. Okay. And so I felt like I'm just this girl from Wine. I'm this girl from the hood. Like right. I don't belong here. Right. And so I really. Um, for the first time, felt how comp- I'd never been in a competitive environment like okay. that. So I just, the first semester was just kind of like, wow, I'm really lost. It's a, it, it's a, it's a big the situation. It's a, it's a big situation for, for anybody yeah. to be in that environment. I mean, people come from across the country to go to NYU. There's yeah. somebody from Iowa that comes to NYU that's never seen anything like it. Yeah. But you, you turn the corner and you turn that 2.5 and a 3.75, which was necessary to oh. get into a power four accounting oh, firm. Absolutely. You know, they don't, they don't, they don't talk to C's. They, you can't right. see a C. Exactly. You can't see a C there. You can't even apply to these positions if you don't have a 3.0 or better, um, okay. sometimes 3.5 or better. So uh, I definitely had to do what I had to do because I didn't make all of this sacrifice. That was the other thing. It's expensive. Of course it is. And even though that's why I tried to finish in the two years, 
But I didn't have financial aid. Well, I had some financial aid, some scholarship, some academic scholarship. But still, I had $33,000 I had to come up with each year. That's a big number. Each year. I graduated with $80,000 in debt. That's a big number. I needed to make something happen. Yes. And I needed to pursue a career that was going to um, reimburse me for hey. my investment. And you know, that, that's, that's, that's interesting that that was your perspective. Oh, yeah. That's um, why I study finance. Not, not pay you just to make X amount of dollars, five figures, six figures. No. You felt that your journey in the corporate world, they need to reimburse you for your investment because it was your investment. Yes. That 33000 you needed, you earned that on your own? I took out student loans. Okay. I paid it off on my own. Okay. Let's yes. go. Let's go. Let's go. Yes, I did. Love, yes, and, I love did. and respect that to the highest degree. Talk about getting into Deloitte, into a Power 4 company. So, just for the audience, tell people what it is, what the Power 4 is. Okay, so there are these big four, uh, about four professional services firms that service all of the big name companies that you can think of in terms of doing their taxes, their audits, anything they need. Um, they go to these kind of big four firms. And so you're consulting and you, for example, don't really have a home base. You're usually out at your client's office. So I may be at, I can throw out make-believe names, but like Google, um, who was never one of my clients. But I could be <laughs> you know, at Google for a few months on a project and travel to somewhere else. I was in financial services, so most of my projects were in New York City. I was on Wall Street for a number of years. Um, working on Lehman Brothers liquidation. So when all these big banks wow. fall, you know, So we're talking from in. a time period standpoint, you're there at the recession, 08, mm -hmm. 09. Oh. We're there. What are you doing specifically while the world is falling apart? Are you looking at? Well, specifically when the world was falling apart in 2008, I was just graduating from college and starting right. my career. So um, it was a very... Uh, unstable time for us our yes. class yes because it was like we got hired but we could get fired yes because people were getting laid off and we were the first or the last in so last in first out right? absolutely absolutely so, um we were always just nervous for our jobs a lot of people that i graduated with you know they did get let go in the year you know following when they got wow. hired because of the recession and such so i knew people that moved back home like everything it was really bad so i was fortunate to just keep my time. It was kind of heads down. And that's how you were treated as well. Like, you should be glad you have a job. Absolutely. Right. And so it was just, it was, it's really already a workhorse culture in those types of mm -hmm. firms anyway. You got to prove yourself. You got to go up the ranks. Everything's very hierarchical. But, um, yeah, during that time, it was just like, okay, we just need to yeah. <laughs> get through this. Just just survive it. <laughs> so give give the people a sense of, of workhorse. People think workhorse, they think uh, heavy lifting and getting dirty. Let's talk about hours. How, what's a typical day? I don't, I don't know what a typical day is. I will tell you, when I first started, I made the rookie mistake of coming in at like 8 or 9 um, and trying to leave at 6. Oh, you late, late. Ooh. You late, late, and you leaving early, early. You leaving early, early. That That's not but how it thing works. The was, what my mentality was, was like, I'm, I'm good at my job. I'm efficient. I'm not talking and going to have lunch and do all that. I'm trying to get my work done. I have good relationships with the client. They love me. I'm getting things done. Everyone around me is working so slow because they know they're going to be here to 9 o'clock at night anyway. So everyone's kind of like lollygagging and things. And I'm just like, mm -mm, well, I'm done. And then they're like, well, you can help 
Yeah. Punch and such out. And I'm like, my reward for being good? Yes. That's, I got to pick up his slack? So so that's that's corporate culture. That is. That, that's corporate culture. I remember being hired when I first started at Allstate in an inside position. In the interview process, it was explained to me there were certain times year-end was important to us. Um, and you were not to make any plans to leave early ever at year-end, mm. even if everything was done for yourself and your team. Right. And uh, one time, about two or three years in, um, I left at six instead of seven. <laughs> and my hiring manager, I, I call him up, we're still friends. His <laughs> eyes walked me across the floor. And mm. the next morning, we had that uncomfortable conversation of, do you remember what we talked about in the interview? I said, yes. He said, but you left. And I said, you know, I explained that my work was done. I looked yes. out for my teammates. He said, but you said. So you got reinforced. So let me ask you a question. Go ahead. I want to say, though, it's very good that that person talked to you yes. before and right after. Yes. My experience was that no one told me That's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to ask you. Did you have a mentor? I did not have a mentor. Okay. Mentoring is, is everything because there's a mindset of my work, mm-hmm. and then every company has a corporate culture, which is unwritten and unsaid, but very much expected. expected. And if no one tells Absolutely. you what those rules are, you're going to be in the dark, and that time frame is just the first part of the conversation mm-hmm. that you didn't know and that you didn't know you were doing anything wrong. Yes, so that happened to me, and I, the only reason why I knew I'd done something wrong was after the whole project was over, I received my project evaluation. Yes. So my managers had to, you know, do the paperwork and submit how I did. Of course, I'm expecting to receive flying colors above average. I did all my work. I, the client loved me, everything. And then I got an average rating, which already I was like, average? Yes. yes. We're back to the C's again. <laughs> right, We're back to the C's. We don't do C's. Yeah, but then the feedback, and it was still not specific. It was you know, needs to maintain a positive attitude. Yes. And I'm like, what does that mean? Yes. I was friend like I okay, I didn't kiki with everyone, but I was friendly. I spoke in the morning. I you know, I, I so it really took some digging. I and I found a mentor after that. So yes. the next project that I worked on, there was a director who took a keen interest in me, knew um, my story, my background, had heard about the previous product. Like, I had a reputation Yes, now. yeah, oh, they're talking. That's, you're the coffee conversation, and if you're not coming in early enough to have coffee with people that matter, mm-hmm. and if you're not going out late enough to have drinks with people that matter, that and can please. And lunches, too, can be and lunches, Oh, lunches are powerful. Yeah. Lunches, are, lunches are critical. So let's go in the beginning. You're, you're getting there at 8, so you're too late for coffee. The early right. people are there at 5 in the morning. Are you eating alone at your desk? I am eating alone. And this is the reason why in this first project I was eating alone. Because, one, I commuted from Long Island. I was commuting from Wine Ranch at the time. I understand. So been it was there. a long commute. I was getting there when I needed to get there. <laughs> <laughs> On time, early even, but not early enough. Right. Yes. So, um, but then I felt like my lunch hour was my only time to myself. And I'm also an introvert. So I'm not naturally someone who's going to, like, Hey, let's all go out to lunch. You know, so I was just kind of like, okay, now I can check my phone. I've been in this dungeon. A lot of times when you're in audit or on audit teams, they give you the worst conference room where the dungeon down with no reception. So I'm coming up for air, get checking my phone. I'm in downtown Brooklyn, going to check out different places to eat. And so I was just doing this, you know, like this is my time to like be myself because if you realize, especially as a black person in corporate America, you have like a 
face on your first project, your first, you know, like I was finally able to breathe in my lunch You're trying to do that. And what they didn't explain to you that part of the salary was we were buying your time. So, so, so Nick, let's, let's talk about the cream for a second. You don't have to say dollar figures. Was it a very nice, attractive salary? Well, I was disappointed. So I was expect. I will tell numbers. Okay, I was expecting when I graduated to make eighty thousand. Okay, because that's what I heard from other people. Now, other people went into investment banking, and I didn't go into investment banking because I prioritized my life, and I was like, I don't want to be working those crazy hours. Okay, so I chose to go into this, which I thought would be reasonable <laughs> hours. Um, but yeah, so I thought I was going to be making eighty thousand. I got an offer for fifty five thousand. Okay. Um, which was fine. Outstanding. That's, that's, uh, that's, good, a, right. that's a good number. It's 08 when people that were making high six figures were being let go. Yes. They were being let go, walked out, and resumed a new career. So 55, that time, uh, above average salary for incomes in America. But go ahead. Yes, and they were giving it to every, like, we come in in classes. Yes. So, like, pretty much they don't want to give Separate. different sal- salaries to different people off the the rep. So they everyone have the same salary. Then you, you know, perform and then things get shifted as you go up. So it took me about four or five years to hit six figures. Okay. About five years when I became manager, okay. I hit uh, six figures. Um, and I soon realized, too, that this career, I tried to make it work. I tried to make it work for almost 10 years. Different projects, different people, different industries. I was switching around into different groups, going from um, you know audits to regulatory consulting, helping people get in compliance with different regulations that were coming out. Where I felt like I was more helpful than auditing. Like you know, got it. So I um, I loved. I liked the people. I liked uh, my teams. I started to open up more and be myself, which yes. was really like, yes, they yes. didn't mind being at yes. work as much. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> because I was just, and then, you know, I, I pulled friends from wherever I was. People like to laugh. People like to have fun. And I like to have fun. So um, I met so many great people. But ultimately, it was around, um, I started to, people knew I mentored. So I, okay. I mentored at um, high schools. I did a lot of mentorship programs through Deloitte. Excellent. Um, and otherwise, I worked with College Summit. So I was really... Deloitte is very active. Yes. They actively recruit from HBCUs. They actively go to Binghamton and other colleges yes. really to have um, an inclusive environment to get you in. Yes. But the culture, once you get there, the mentorship is something that's often missing from a lot of companies. So fast forward from... Del- go ahead. Yeah, they're starting, to, they're starting to pick that up. So I start. I moved into diversity and inclusion while I was at Deloitte. Started a little... Um, it was a part-time gig, which really meant it was It was supposed to be 50% of my workload, but it was really 50 plus the 100%. <laughs> so, um, but around the shootings of Philando Castile and yes. um, Alton Sterling, I felt moved to move into diversity and inclusion full-time. I wanted to do something more for black people, for people of color, um, and and anyone who was marginalized to, to really help them out. And I didn't want to give up on corporate yet. Got it. Because, one, I had bills to pay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had invested a lot of time in this in this career, in this career path, but then also because I felt like we need this avenue, too, to be able to create well, like not everyone's going to be an entrepreneur and build billion-dollar businesses. It's, it's, very, it's very important, and hence our conversation have in depth. 
You coming from Wine Ranch, coming from the family that you come from, we're from a economically disadvantaged area, but you came, you finished college. There's an expectation, although there isn't uh, maybe a whole lot of mentorship and guidance to get you through it. Yes. That this is the path. Girl, you there. Yes. You got to stay. You got to endure. And there's nobody for you to talk to, to to navigate the challenges in that environment. But yet you're, you're feeling that things are going on and you're making money, but you're not happy. Not happy. And my mentors at work, partners that I've worked with, all, you know, great people. I had a lot of white male mentors. Excellent. Have been the one of the best mentors that I've had. Um, also white women. So I never really found a black mentor. So I, I'll say that. Like, you, you don't have to look for someone who looks like you, right? But um, I've, I've gotten a lot of value out of the people that have invested in me and been a sponsor or a mentor to me. Um, but they didn't get it. They didn't get why I would walk away from a promising career on a, like, partner path, you know, to go and do something that was HR. That was, that was, that right. was, uh, it was like that, that was different. And uh, we could do a whole nother thing on the partner path yeah. and what that means mm-hmm. into, uh, for you economically. Cause that would put a zero behind the 55 oh, yeah. in short, in short order and oh, yeah. in, in short order. So it would have been a big sacrifice for me. And I don't know if I would have, it wasn't guaranteed, right? It was just, they believed in me and my potential. And that, and that's a beautiful thing. So you navigate it. You had a shot at the title. You were clear on the sacrifice that was involved of sacrificing time for money, right? Because uh, what no one tells anyone that a job, accepting a job, and it doesn't matter if you're accepting a job, retail, Mm -hmm. fast food, insurance, accounting, I'm paying you money for your time. Yes. And I'm buying all of your time for the designated amount of time and hours that are involved. But there's, there's, there's something embedded in us, there's an American thing called freedom that sometimes yes. people want to pursue. And there are words in corporate phases like work and family balance that mm-hmm. even with more money, you didn't think you could achieve. Right. So you, and I had a baby. And you had a well. baby. So that That's a trigger. That happened. So the baby, he, he's coming into the world. You're expecting at the end of your corporate journey. Talk about that. Yeah, so I, uh, I got pregnant while I was at Deloitte during that diversity and inclusion thing. And I will say that having a child really caused me to examine what I wanted to do, where I wanted to invest my time, because now my time wasn't just my own. Yes. I was now leaving my son to be cared for by someone else to do this job. And is it worth the sacrifice? So I had to really sit with that and and see if this job was worth that sacrifice. And that and that's a hard one to come up with from an economic standpoint. It's yes. really hard to answer it that way. Are you still commuting from Long Island to the city at oh. this time, or had you moved in? I moved to Queens right like six months into working at Deloitte. So I moved. I realized I couldn't do that commute anymore. I needed to be closer, and so I moved to Queens and had been between Queens and Brooklyn for that whole time I was at Deloitte. I didn't. I came back to Long Island um, just a couple of six years ago uh, in Freeport, Nassau County. Okay, you know, so that my commute would not be as bad. But I wanted a house and I wanted a yard. <laughs> so there you go. I came uh, to buy my first house back in Long Island after when I was pregnant. Actually. Okay. So lots of changes happened when I was pregnant. I'm like, okay, let's get a house. Let's um, let's also, you know, I had to think about what I wanted to do, and it was actually, you know, I had two work induced panic attacks. Ooh. 
that it really caused me to be like, I, I have to step away from this job. It's literally killing. Like, I'm literally so unhappy and feel so out of control and like, my baby needs me, everyone needs me, and I don't have any time for myself. I don't have time to do anything. I don't like what I'm doing. I hate my teams, like everything, right? So I was just in this really, really dark place, and it took me having two panic attacks to finally have a conversation with my husband and being like, I don't know how, I don't even want to go to work on Monday. Right. And he had to, like, give me the permission to be like, if it's killing you, if it's if it's causing you that much pain, forget about it. Why are you doing it? Yes. And shout out to hubby. Yes, yes. Shout out to him. So after that, you know, I prayed about it. You know, went to church. I felt like I got some confirmation. I felt at peace with my decision. I came in and I told them I would um, like to leave. My partners told me, Monique, take a sabbatical. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Take a sabbatical. Take six months, however much time you need. It was up to six months. Figure it out. You don't have another job. You have a baby. Like they were like, you know, insurance. You can do what you want, but don't jump off this ledge. This firm has put. uh, You've given so much to this firm. Allow the firm to take care of you for a little bit. That's a beautiful answer. Shout out to Deloitte and Tooch. That's well done. So I did take a. Paid sabbatical. It was partially paid. It was enough to keep our health, like health insurance and things. And um, but most part, we didn't have any income coming in. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we tried to, you know, make ends meet. We paused everything. But in those six months, I took some time to figure out what I wanted to do and that I wanted to go into diversity and inclusion full time. I landed a job at New York Life Insurance Company, Beautiful. corporate vice president of diversity and inclusion. I was willing to take a pay cut before when I went on this job search just because I wanted this career. And I knew that I had built all of this you know, track record, but it was in something else. So, um, But my experience translated, and I received 30% more than what I was getting paid. Let's go. I mean, it was – I had an office. I had this beautiful title, a great team. I was just like – Look at God. And you're and you're doing something that you're passionate about, and now you're positioning yourself to help your younger self and to help the corporation. So Absolutely. diversity and inclusion, what does that look like from a day-to-day job responsibility? Because to me, I'll tell you my expectation of it, mm-hmm. but you tell it what it really is. It's kind of a job with dual responsibility. You have upward reporting responsibilities Absolutely. where you have to help New York Life as a company, mm-hmm. right, to do the right thing by the employees. Yes. But then you're also receiving information from employees about what their – it's New York Life's vision, and then it's the employees. It's my experience. Yes. So talk to me about that. That is pretty much what the two uh, things that I'm managing. So one, it's managing up, right? Developing presentations, uh, getting a strategy for how do we move the needle. Now, these needles haven't moved for 20 years. <laughs> you know, we're talking about financial services industry, a predominantly white male My industry, industry. yes. Right. So it's, it's going to take a lot to move the numbers, but you know, thinking about strategy, um, reporting up, uh, on these things where we're making progress, where we have opportunities. Um, but then also a big part of it was managing expectations for um, minorities in the company. So people um, of color, women, disabilities, um, 
so, so many different communities. All diversities. There's so many diversities. Sometimes people think diversity, you just think black and white, but it's so much broader yeah. than that. I'll yes. share an experience I had early in my Allstate career. I had to speak to an audience of 600 Allstate employees about diversity. And um, my take on it, and what what's funny about it is you and I come from backgrounds with no diversity. There yeah, was no diversity right. in YNH school. Exactly. It was just us. Black. So we go into environments where you're expected to lead and help people understand us, but we don't necessarily have the background where we understand our coworkers and their perspective. So that's something different to, to navigate. How'd you navigate that space? Uh, well, I luckily got a lot of um, acclimation to the broader world through NYU and through um, my experience at Deloitte. So I was used to being thrown in different environments, different projects, different teams, different types of people, different parts of the country. So um, I think that all battle tested me yes. <laughs> before I got to this role. So I I am also someone who's pretty warm and approachable and people tend to gravitate toward me and things. So I had a great time building relationships and building trust nice. uh, with people. And they Big. knew that I was there because I cared. Big. Right? That's, every, that's everything right there. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah. So people, people trusted me. So I think that helped a lot. Um, and then... The fact that I also was really real about where we could make improvements and like I didn't try to sugarcoat. So a lot of times people check out when someone from the company is still speaking corporate speak and still covering the firm and not acknowledging their pain points. Absolutely. So I try to acknowledge people's pain points, you know, give them that validation Mm-hmm. Right. And then talk about how we're addressing right. it. So um, that's that was my approach to it. That was how I, I handled it. Um, I think I built pretty strong rapport amongst uh, the variety of communities um, at the company. And I enjoyed it. And I was doing well. And <laughs> I got more responsibilities. I got a team. I got everything. But then um, 2020 happened. I got it. 2020 happened to all of us. Everything yes. comes to a screeching halt. Yes. Working from home, I now don't ha- don't have childcare, so I'm home with uh, my six, well, five year old. He was being homeschooled. Um, yeah, it was a lot. It was four four year old at the time. He was in pre K, so we're doing the homeschool. I'm doing my conference calls, and the company, like everyone's going through this at the same time. So yes. everyone's trying to be accommodated. The whole world is in a place yes. we've never been. Right. Everyone's trying to be accommodated. It was a lot. I also was writing this book, Home okay. for Hurricanes. So I'm writing the book. I started on it the year prior, and I knew that I wanted to publish it this year. And so I have all of these things happening. Then um, there's the murder of George Floyd. Yes. And now where we went from kind of COVID-19 transition, how do we support all of our communities as they're transitioning through to working from home and what those implications are on teamwork and where we may fall behind the cracks again, like black people and and people of color and minorities may not show up as much on the screen, like everything. So we're thinking through all of this. And then George Floyd happens, the murder of George Floyd. And it was a lot. So for me, as someone who cares about this personally, it feels personally um, like an an advocate and, and talking about these things and raising these issues and raising awareness. I'm speaking on this. I'm writing articles. I like. I want. I have so much to say, but when you're working for a company, and you're at that level, 
you have to be cognizant of what you say because whether you're reflecting the firm's views or not, it's going to be perceived that, that way. You're like speaking you can't on, separate. That you're speaking on behalf of um, yes. New York Life and not on behalf of, of Nikki Murphy. Right. Um, it's amazing to, to feel you talk about it. Not listen yeah. to you, but to feel you talk about it because the emotion is clear yes. in your face how you feel that you felt it at a very deep, a very intimate, and a very personal level as many people did. Yes. So on top of that, my job now is to navigate. It's ramped up. Like all the attention is on diversity and inclusion and everybody wants everything and they want it now. They want education. They want to be the best equipped person to know what to do when they face a black person in the park. Like it's just like, okay, let's educate people on this. Let's educate people on systemic racism. Let's educate people on... So it just became this like... All right, we got to get in front of people. We got to okay. show we're handling this, and and that's the response of every corporation during that time. That, like it, you have it, to. It's overwhelming. So the, the the backdrop. Everyone knows the George Floyd story. Um, let's date it June twenty twenty. June twenty twenty. June twenty twenty. Yes. Everyone knows the story. What happened? We won't get into that now. We already, you know what you know what you felt. Um, corporate wise, your job. I'm going to guess and correct me. Some of the numbers you probably were driving was. The number of diversity representation, representation yeah. at various levels, executive level, promotions, empro- employees, like promotions, hiring. make sure there's no problems. Mm-hmm. All companies at some point in their past have lawsuits, so they want to get better. And it's mm-hmm. numerical. So it has right. that accounting parallel. There's a number you're accountable for, and there's a goal you're working towards. Even though it's HR and diversity, you have a N goal. Just like any business. Any business. Yeah. New York you Life is a financial goals. services company, just like. All-state, numbers-driven company. They do a lot of wonderful things, but it's a for-profit company, and there are numbers that must be hit. Mm-hmm. And this happens, and the world is upside down, and now things are well, unspoken and undone that wasn't a part of your corporate packet of what to do. Now there's an expectation. Let's get Nikki. Nikki's from Dance. She'll know what to do. Well, yeah, and I'm in the role. Right. So I I have to know what to do. So that was fun. And so I was navigating that, navigating my team through that. Also feeling this dual thing because there's the black community that also is rightfully so demanding certain things. I was very proud (laughs) demanding certain things to hold the company accountable, which is great. And, um, you know, and I'm, you know, wearing my multiple hats. hats and Really just, and then at night, and then everything. So it was just a lot going on. And for me, um, it was also my birthday in June. And my birthdays tend to be very reflective time for me where I kind of evaluate how my life is going, where I might want to make some changes. So I was already kind of like, okay, I really want to publish this book. I'm feeling like I don't have capacity to do everything that I want to do. And I feel like my voice... I. I kept feeling very strongly that my voice needed to be heard outside of this one corporation, right? And so I um, prayed about it, <laughs> you know, everything. And uh, in July, I ended up giving my notice that I would be leaving. No other job, no other prospects in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but yeah, I, I so I resigned. A lot of it had to do with also my, my son, right? I wanted to be, it was it was a real struggle to try to manage all of that. And it was summertime now, so there was not even a school Zoom to put him on. Right, right, right no. So, um, you know, I also wanted to be present for that. And I always, um, 
after the first time I took that sabbatical at Deloitte, I've always now looked at things as my career is the rest of my life, right? If I take a break in a pandemic, no one's going to shoot me. No for one's going. Right? Everybody's going <laughs> no one's through the. Crucify yeah, me for, no, for absolutely taking, for leaving my job during a pandemic, and I know what I've done. I know my accomplishments. I know my resume, and I know that if I wanted to pick a job back up, I could. So for me, it was about making a decision that was going to honor myself and my family at that time, and I chose to make that decision to step away and to pursue and really give my all to this book um, and finish it up and really be able to promote it. Because otherwise, I was just doing it almost as like a hobby. As a hobby, as a hobby on the side. So right. you answered a question that I ask everybody this season, and we're going to shift directions into the book. Mm-hmm. This season, and the reason uh, that I wanted you here as a guest is because collectively we all went through the pandemic. Yes. Some people have gone through it and come out on the other side. Some people are still in it. You know, it's mm-hmm. technically not over. We're, we're filming this in um, the middle of October of 2021. Um, but there's a series of people, all my guests that I selected this season, I thought they did a great job of changing their narrative and changing their direction. Mm-hmm. So where did that courage come from for you to change your narrative? How did you get the courage to really dig into the book? And then we're going to get into the book right after that. Yeah, so I... The courage, I think, came from having done it before without having as much courage, right? So I had done that sabbatical thing where I was like, my identity has always been very closely tied to my accomplishments, whether it was academic or career. So for me to break that tie that one time and say, okay, I'm worth more than this. I am more than my title. I'm more than who I am to Deloitte. Right. Um, And... That kind of laid the foundation for me to be able to be like, okay, well, I did it that time and I was okay. So now this time, um, you know, this is what I want to do. I'm writing. I want to present myself as an author um, and I really need to lean into this. And I just I just did it, you know, and I felt very strongly to the big, big factor in it all was God. So I'm I'm Christian. I I pray, go to church, all the whole nine, read my Bible. And so for me, um, when it came time to write this book, I didn't even think it was a book, right? I was okay. just writing poetry, and that was in 2017 when I took that sabbatical. And this sabbatical, and this is how things come full circle. And that sabbatical, I was writing poems. We also went to our first property auction to buy a, a home, an investment property. We won the auction with no jobs, <laughs> like at everything. We got that property and we made it work and we made that happen. And then now we have a very prominent real estate portfolio. So, for me, the 2007 sabbatical, that stepping out on faith and trusting that, had led to so much fruit. Yes. That I was like, okay, when God told me I, that I had a book, all I had to do was pull together these poems. And I'm like, on the Long Island Railroad, like, really? A book? Yes. You know, would anyone want to hear my my yes. poems? Like, yes. I'm not even a poet. I don't, yes. never put a poem out publicly. Like, what? <laughs> you know, so um, so for me, when I, you know, heard that, and I was like, well, I think I could just pull it together. I mean, I don't have to publicize it or anything. Right. I could just make the book. Right. And so I started working on it. And then, you know, when it became this time in Georgia, like, I think the whole environment of the moment and feeling like I was playing, I always feel before I make a big transition that I'm playing too small. 
So I challenge Ooh. myself with that. Like, I feel like I'm playing too small in this moment. That's a clip right there for my editors. Get this in that I think <laughs> I'm playing too small. Go ahead. Yes. What do you mean by you're playing too small? Yeah, so what I, uh, we get in these grooves of uh, where we can, you know, reach certain heights, but then we get really comfortable. Yes. And secure. Yes. In uh, the path that we're on. But then you'll feel something inside like you need to be doing something more you need to be doing something or affecting more people or what have you and so I would get these feelings yes (laughs) before I met and I would fight it like yes 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 (laughs) no I have a secure job I'm making all this money yes only one in the family this This is what I'm supposed to do yeah got these bills yes like all of this and it's like you know all these things are happening like how could you know what more could could happen <laughs> yes but um you know and then when I feel like I'm playing too small though like when I start to have dreams or feelings that are bigger than the moment that I'm in and the life that I'm living then that's when I know I need to pivot there you go so for me in that moment it was like okay I'm working this job I'm grinding I'm behind the scenes um in terms of the broader world I'm grinding my people know me in my company and you know, I'm very visible role so um I just felt like I have all of this. Like, they don't even know that I'm this part. Of like, only I knew this. Yes. So it's like, I knew that, and my husband, because I read some stuff to him, but, like, nobody knew this. But I had to believe in myself. Yeah. Like, okay, I got something worth sharing with the world. And people kept thinking this. Even when I was in corporate and they said, you know, you're on the partner track what makes you think you would go in HR? Like, why would you do that? But it's like, I know who I am. And, and I know what I'm good at. And that's the most valuable lesson anybody can learn in the world. If you don't learn anything else except for who you are. Yes. You're incredibly wealthy. Not financially. You're incredibly mm-hmm. wealthy because you know who you are. Yes. And there's only one Nikki Murphy. <laughs> yes. So, people, um, this is incredible. I'm going to do the best job I can asking you about the book. It's okay. so rich. And so deep, there's no way I'm going to do this part of the interview justice. But let me begin. Let's begin with Roman. Okay. Let's begin with Roman. Roman is one of the poems um, in the book. So can you treat the people to a read of Roman? Sure. Can open it up, but I kind of know it. If you want to do it, performed it. However, please and please perform it. Don't read it. Please perform it. Okay. If you need to stand, whatever you need to do, please perform it. I want the I want the audience to feel it. Okay. Get myself together. Is the mic okay? Yes. Okay. Can we raise it or is it good? Will it pick it up? Okay, let's raise it up. Let's raise the mic up. Can you raise it up? We'll edit this out. We'll we'll bridge okay. it out just so it comes in real natural. Um come up okay and what I'm going to say is a bridge so I'm going to just say a bridge so it's clean afterwards okay and right now Nikki Murphy reading the the first poem that captured me the most in the book Nikki okay for Roman it was a nice campus but the flowers seemed a little too bright The other kids in the program, a little too white. Then I spotted you. 
us two teens from the same school in a lab with goggles, beakers, real science tools, and experiment. The subjects, me and you, taken out of our element to learn something new, adapting, pouring solution from a beaker to a flask, and when I needed help, I didn't even have to ask, bonding, we learned how opposites attract and how when separated, magnetic force could pull them right back. When you left, I didn't have your number and you didn't have mine. And after school, I went to college and you, you stayed behind. Next time I'd see you, six years, far too late, you'd be dressed to kill and I'd be at your wake. And all the article's comments would paint a distorted picture that somehow your life was deserving of that trigger. Trolls telling the world how much they hate our town and how they can't drive through, so they gotta drive around, and how they wish that we'd all just kill each other. A murder in March? Damn, it ain't even summer. I wanted to respond and tell him about the guy I knew, how it was all about the team and never once about you. I wanted to respond and tell him about the guy you used to be and how you smiled and joked around even more than me, how you'd measure the liquid, fill it in the glass, apply the heat, sit back smiling, waiting for the gas, how polite you were on that ride home with my mother, and how you never even missed a single session that summer. I hate that in your death, your life was misunderstood. Where I saw a smiling scientist, they saw a thug from the hood. And I know a sinner can be forgiven, so I pray that you are in a lab room in heaven. And maybe it was you that caused that last thunderstorm, that rainbow or day that was a little too warm. Perhaps you're petitioning for every dope boy and trap queen asking God to shine a light on the rock and hard place they're stuck in between. And while you're up there talking with him, I'll be down here trying to change the world from within. And sometimes I wonder how things would have been if maybe after school you had enrolled at UPenn and studied math or science while the rain falls from a cloud, then come back to the hood and make everybody proud. I wish I would have told you what the counselors told me, that things could be different if you get a degree, and how sometimes you have to leave your comfort zone and go away, even if it means leaving mom at home alone. Until now, I didn't notice how your death affected me, how in the same year that you died, I started mentoring. So now I go into schools without laboratories, and tell the kids about the power in their stories. Record them on a tract, act it out in a play, type it up and submit it as a college essay. They smile like you because they got something to say and it changed the world. We gotta fight in more than one way. So I tell the kids that college is popping and how even with no money, they still got a few options. Though it seems like you're signing up for years of strife, a student loan is a small price to pay for a life. So I enroll a kid in a college course and this is how I channel my survivor's remorse. Look at you, started a revolution and you ain't even know it. Your blood's the ink in the pen moved by a poet, our story, I'll put it in a poem for Roman 
a soldier shot on his way home. Thank you, thank you. No, 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 no. Thank you. That that poem is so powerful. It's so powerful. Um, and I could talk it for you. To, well, you, you, you have to shake his deep. You captured um, so much yeah. of what so many people feel so often when we have these losses, it becomes a Facebook post on IG story or comments below it minimizes who these people are i'm choosing it carefully not who they were but who these people are and you tapped into my emotions with that Mm. because i didn't know roman yeah but i know roman several yes several several romans and I, i think a certain audience that's listening to it does as well as well so let me ask, Roman is not a fictional poem. Roman is a real person. Yes. Okay. Yes. So it was a real person um, I went to a summer science program with when I was 16. He went to my school. We didn't really talk because I was in the honors class, and he was in another class. And, like, right then it was kind of like the separation of who, you know, we had all of our classes with our group. And, you know, so the only time we really commingled with other students was at lunch or right. recess. So, and I wasn't allowed to go out to parties or anything. Got it. So we just really never were in the same circle until we had this summer science program. And it's so funny because we had the science program. We were good friends during the science program. It was just Four of us from our school, three or four. Where's the science program at? It was at uh, what's Dowling, I believe. Dowling College, mm-hmm. Wynash Dowling College. Oh, yes. I, I like that. Every so Saturday? It was on a college campus. It was once a week. I think it was every Saturday. Um, and, you know, they were taking kids from all the Long Island schools, and they included Wynash. And this time, a lot of times I had done these, like, little science programs because I was top of my class, so they would always select me. But this time, instead of it being just people from my honors class, it was actually, they did a mix of students. So they picked people that were in the honors class, but then also someone who had potential. Nice. Right? Which I love. So, I, you know, it was exciting for me because now I'm getting to, like, be friends with people that aren't in the honors class. So um, Roman was the only person in my grade that was in the program. It was four of us. Um, and the other people were more junior. But uh, so he and I connected. Of course. Um, but we, you know, it was a friendship that we built over that summer. But then when we went back to school, we went back to our separate Got it. Lives, right? And I graduated in two two years later, went on to college. We did not keep in touch. And then I get the news that he passed. And then, you know, this is this happens a lot. And you're like, damn, what happened? And you, you know, you go back, see what time to wake, you know. So I'm there and I'm at the church and, and everything. And, you know, I feel like I have no rights to Roman, right? Because you know, he was my friend for a period of time, of course. right? But in reading all the, you know, people Facebook, the comments, the, oh, another thug, and all of this stuff. And, you know, I'm not saying anything about how he died or what happened. It doesn't matter. It doesn't right? matter. But who I knew, and the, I thought it was very important to highlight how people who, uh, you know, sometimes are demonized mm-hmm. in death or in, in their later choices, we were all kids. Yes. And we were all innocent kids. Of course. And we were all, all kids promising. are innocent. Yes. <laughs> a hundred, forever. Yes. They're, 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 they're always innocent forever. And there's no uh, no details of, of what happened or how it happened is required 
at right. all. It's not it's not required, but um, I think you relate to. We'll keep talking. They'll tell me when it's off on, um, and then we'll we'll, we'll keep going. We'll we'll pick that up. Okay. So thank you for sharing about Roman. I can see what that. Uh, I can see that's from your heart. These yeah. are not words. So, Last question I want to ask about Roman. Did you write this right after you went to the wake? When did you, how far removed were you when you wrote it? Maybe five or six years after. So I wrote this in 2017. He passed years before, I think in 2013. Okay. Um, so for, so this was something, and this is what was special about that sabbatical that I took in writing. I had no idea that these stories existed in my body. Yes. In my brain and my heart. Yes. And, like, how long had I been holding on to my feel? Like, why would that even be on my mind? But this uh, writing of this book and the poems, a lot of the poems that were in this book were very, it was cathartic. It was like an experience where I would, right before I would go to bed, it's like I would just get a download and I'd be, like, up all night typing on my phone or on the computer and writing in notebooks. And it was just, like, all of this stuff. But I think, you know, a lot of times we spend so much of our life living outside of our bodies and, like, just kind of growing through the motions. Yes. Right, and not really sitting with what we're feeling. Busy being busy. Yes. So for me, having this space, for the first time in my life, I've been working since I was 15, so for the first time in my life, I'm having space. Yes. Margin. Yes. That's so important. Yes. To build some margin into your life. So I'm having this open space now, and now I'm feeling everything that I felt. I'm processing the loss of my grandmother from 2011 in 2017. I'm processing this with Roman now, um, which I believe was 2013 now in 2017. And so there was all of this like pain and undealt with, emotions yes. that I ended up getting out through writing, and it came in the form of poetry. I didn't set out to write poems. It just happened. It just happened that way. So you brought her up. Let's talk about your grandmother. Your, yes. your grandmother, <laughs> widely loved. Yeah. Uh, I attended her service. Um, in honor of your grandmother, your family gives the largest, most well-attended party in Wyandanche. Mm. Every year, I saw you there this it. year. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it literally is a two-day party. Everybody is invited. Uh, your grandmother was a part of the motorcycle club, so mm-hmm. all the bikers, they come down. Your uncles, who I know from school, major athletes, shout out to Big Luke, both yeah. of you, uh, Dwight and Darrell, and your um, other uncle's yes. name escapes me right now, David. David. Yes. But uh, all major athletes. But your family gives this this party all in honor of your grandmother. So let's talk about your grandmother for a minute. Oh, my grandmother, Nana, she's amazing. She is someone who, and I'm so blessed to have grown up with her because I think a lot of my resilience I can attribute to her. So my grandmother was, you know, not your baking cookies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, grandmother, she was real. She was in the streets. Bike she riding grandmother. She was in grandma. the community, yeah. right? She would curse people out. She would curse <laughs> me out. Um, you know, she was not, um, she, she had a big heart for people. So she took care of people. But she didn't have a, like, she wasn't always the nicest, like, words. You know, she was going to, she's a tough lover. Okay. And so, um you know, a lot, a lot of things. She also was like my number one rider. Like, if there was something that happened in school, I, I uh, talk about even in this book where um, 
there were uh, kids, boys on the bus that used to touch me. Okay. And so my gra- I would come home crying. My mom, my grandmother would go up to the bus station and like she was the one who would be up there cursing everybody out. Yes. Y'all need to get a fucking bus monitor Ooh. on this bus. You know, like she just gave it. So she was my number one like ride or die like girl. With you. We're not having yes. it. This, <laughs> this how we this how we <laughs> handle ourselves. Yes. But even though she was that way, what I loved about it was that everyone in the community respected her. So people feared her, but people also respected her. They realized her love. Hand in hand. Yeah. So, I mean, I never really wanted to be feared. I wanted to be liked. So, Oh, that's that's not what grandma taught you. (laughs) That's not what she taught me. No, that's that's. That's not the lesson. Re- yeah. Respect those words, and yes. they respect. Uh, unfortunately, they respect the the hand. So yeah. I love I love hearing that she so means the world to everybody. So you have so you have uh, yeah. ten years of this party going on in honor oh, of her in honor of her life. Years. More than ten. I think she passed away. In she passed away ten years ago. But she, she used to give the party. She used yeah, to give the party when years I was ago. Like in high school, like sixteen and so. So she. It's been a while. Yes. We just kept the legacy going. So your grandmother, your house, you grew up in mm-hmm. Rook Avenue, yes. Boondocks Wine Dance. Yes. Shout out to my <laughs> wife that's from that block and yes. everybody else from the Boondocks <laughs> that represents Brook Avenue. But when yes. y'all give this party, it shuts down. It does. Nikki, <laughs> this is. I'm a reader, right? Yes. So a book like this that's a novel is probably two days for me, tops. Mm-hmm. I have not finished this book because each time I read something, I process it and I feel it and I live with it. Yeah. So I'm not going to ask you to read again. I'll give you an emotional break. Okay. I'm going to try to find... <laughs> an emotional dear, break. Yeah, like because it's a lot. We <laughs> need that. It's a lot. <laughs> I'm going to try to find um, the father, the story, Daddy's story, confession. Daddy's confession, right. page forty-seven. Mm-hmm. And you wrote about your dad, rest in soul, yes. rest rest in peace. Um, and you wrote the the poem you wrote about him was powerful. So I am not gonna. I dog eared it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not gonna attempt to be you. <laughs> um, I won't do it justice. I can't read it. Can you can you can you read it? Then we'll talk about. Okay, I don't mind. I don't want to drain you, but I want no, I want no. the I want the or can you or this can you do it? I want to talk about it. Draining for me. Good. Go. Okay, Daddy's confession. I remember the day my daddy confessed. I was a post college adult in the back seat of a car with both my reunited and newly introduced half siblings. The partition between my whole father and I. And priest in the way that I absorbed his unfiltered confessions of my then chronically ill and spiritually transformed father. He reflects on his life not knowing it would be over in five short years. First, he warned, you'll probably hate me for this. Then, without a pause to even momentarily debate sharing, he confessed. Sins against desperate women... If there was anything to hate you for, might it have been the years of my life that you were absent? Not how you spent your time. Besides, I couldn't imagine it. Sure, he walked the neighborhood with a black and gold cane, gold rings on every finger, not to be overshadowed by the layers of gold chains donned around his neck like anchors. 
and years spent dressed in one loud color from head to toe, topped with a Kangol hat for good yes. measure. Yes, he looked the part. And people joked of it. Still, it was hard to read intimidation when he always beamed a shining, dumbfounded, gold-tooth grin whenever he saw me, which was mostly every second Saturday in June, Wine Dance Day, when I walked over to him in the park and introduced myself. Hey. I'd pause uncomfortably for a few seconds while he tried to place where he knew me from. At my breaking point, it's Nikki. Then there it was, that toothy grin and open embrace like I was an unexpected Amazon package arriving on his doorstep without his recalling having ordered just the thing he'd been looking for. His not knowing me upon initial greeting was a running joke between my homegirl and I. We would laugh about it afterward in the way that teenagers laugh off the things that should hurt them. That unquick cheesing grin made it hard to imagine him a threat to anyone. He continued with stories about ex-lovers, about the violence, about getting run over by a car, the accident that resulted in extensive brain damage, causing him to have to relearn and remember many things, including that he had me. This accident hung over our relationship, or lack thereof, like a gray cloud unsure of whether to rain or run. Is the accident the reason he never recognized me? Or was it because he was never there? Was he not there because he didn't remember his connection to me? Or did he remember and choose to ignore my existence? until we ran into each other in the neighborhood and did this song and dance about how proud he was of me and how pretty I was. I don't know. But I swallowed his confessions about everything but the obvious, like manna from heaven, because it was something to know about my father, that he recognized his unproud moments and he remembered. It would take me a while years even, to understand that his karma found me even when he did not. Oh, my God. My God. Dear Daddy. Daddy's confessions. Yes. Incredibly, incredibly powerful. Um, I knew your dad. Um, your description of his attire <laughs> to a T. Um, if there was a picture next to Fly Guy in the dictionary... Your dad would be in it. Oh, gosh. Uh, the, the gold, the yes, rings, the kango, the chains, the, the dress the to the teeth, teeth the gold yes. teeth, the the whole thing. Yes. That was your dad. That was. That was that was your dad. And you captured him very well, good and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And um a lot resonated with me with this poem, uh Wine Dance Day. Yes. That you would run into him. Yes. That's usually when I would see him. You know, he lived around the corner from me, but he wasn't in my life. Um, so apart from a couple of times when I went over to ask for money for school clothes, I didn't have a relationship with him. So uh, Wine Inch Day, though, he is like a 
fixture in the community. Like people know him. People for the longest time didn't know that was my father. I'm the top of my class, this, like goody two shoes kid. And like people, when they started to realize when I was in middle school, they were like, "That's your, that's yeah. your father." Yeah. You know, Randy is your dad. Yes. And I'm yes. like. Yeah, so it kind of gave me a little bit of street cred, even though that works. Not, not deserving. But um, I would see him on Wine Dish Day, because of course every Wine Dish Day he's out. Yes. And I'm out. Yes. So um, we would congregate, you know, everyone comes to the park. A lot of times I was in the parade, you know, uh, <laughs> dancing and things, and then um, would come to the park after and meet up with my friends and stuff, and uh, I'd see him. And so, you know, my friend and I, we would go over there. She'd be like, that's your dad over there. And I'd go over <laughs> and, and, you know, say hi. He never knew who I was on initial, you know, right. hi. You know, and then it took him a minute. And then he'd be like this. And I'd be like, okay, it's Nikki. You know, oh, kind my, of thing. Take him. I wish people would do that for me now. Yeah. God knows I, I forget names and faces and it's hard to remember. So yeah. thank God for your love and kindness. Yes. Let me ask you a question. How old were you when he had the accident? I was in elementary school. I think I was in third grade Okay. when he had the accident. So it had already been years that I had not really seen him. Okay. You know, it so wasn't there like wasn't was... a pre-relationship strong before no, that? No. From what I know from, like, my mom, she told me, like, he used to take me when I was a baby. Like, when I was a baby, like, I would go over there and stuff sometimes. Um, uh, but I have no memory of, <laughs> of Pictures. Of Good uh, no, pictures from better times? No, no pictures. So it's really, you know, wine inch day. It's um, <laughs> amazing, amazing, amazing. We give, uh, you know, as a part of Wine Inch Day, organizing and giving it for many years. And uh, when I joined the committee, Charles Jazz Jackson, also a Brook Ave original, always told me, he said, Cub, we do this for the people that are coming from out of town because they spend money to come back from the south of oh, being wine inch. Yeah. And here you I'm are giving like me that. a rich gear because we're always focused on making sure it's worth their time and money that they came up. So we always wanted to elevate the day to make sure they had an incredible time while they were yeah. here. That's our driving force in the background. Um, but here you are. You're yeah. running to your dad from one black time. over. <laughs> reunion, not with the class of 04, but no, with dad. with my father. So. With, Oh my god! It would be awkward, so we didn't spend a lot of time talking. But, but it's Wine Day was more than that too. For for me too, well, one I was in the parade a lot, but it, it also gave me a chance to showcase who I was outside of school because a lot of people only knew me in school as an honor student, like in my class and everything. But then Wine Day, it's like I can't hang out, but I can go out on you, Wine You got Wine Day. Day. Yes. You got this. So I can dress. You up, get dressed. Get you could dance. Yes. You could be seen. <laughs> yes. You could be cute. You could be courted. Exactly. All, all of all the, of uh, all of all of the above. That's everybody's one shining yes, moment. One I, shot. I loved it as a child, which is why I got involved and in, and in giving it again, so people yes. could see that joy. But Nikki Wine Inch has to see you now. I know. Oh, what? I love. I, well, I do go to Wine Inch. Um, you know, in the middle school, I have a relationship with a guidance counselor there, so I've done a few things at the middle school. I've not done anything broader in the Wine Inch community, though, and I would love to. You know, I'm. In time, still there, pretty regularly. Okay. Um, well, we're so. gonna do something. I have, yes. I have an idea that I think we should take action on at the, about the time that we release this podcast. Mm. I have an idea. Started marinated with me this morning. I started um, just visualizing what that should be. Yes. They should see you now. Yes, they should. They, I would they, love they, it. they they should see you now. They they need to see you now. Um, your your story. You you tell the story of. 
your relationship with your father, who you knew, mm-hmm. but was absent. Right. The absent father is one of the biggest challenges in our community. So even though you knew him, you probably were a step ahead of many of your friends that didn't even know who their dad was. Right. Right. So in, in spite of everything. I don't know if it's less painful, though. Okay, know, and I won't diminish it. Right, to know somebody and know that they're right there. And still. You know? What was that pain like? Um, for me, actually, growing up, I felt I didn't have any pain. And the reason why I felt that way, I, I, it didn't hit me until I was an adult. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up, I lacked for nothing. My mom made my life so rich, my family, everyone, Brook Avenue, all the kids. And then also... Like you said, our community is not that diverse. So when when I was growing up, everyone was black, and, and not a lot of people had two parents. In yeah, the home. no, so, so you fit no right one in. Had a right. Like, so it was I'm not laughing because like, it's, it's funny, but your presentation but it's, of it, it's it's true. It's, true. it's the reality. You know, so, and you had very strong men. Yes. In your life, my your uncle, your uncles, yeah. correction officer, NYPD. Yes. So you have. You had strong men role yes. models in your life. No nonsense. Right. No playing. No. Uh, Nikki's off limits. The whole the whole nine yeah. yards. The whole nine yeah. yards. So you had, you had you had you had a lot of uh, strength. I want to deal with one more poem because you mentioned it when um, you were talking about what you went through in corporate America, and I was talking about the panic attacks. So I think that one yeah. is really rich as well, and that's one of the ones that I happen to read. This morning, um, oh. and people, as, as Nikki accesses the poem, um, I want you to buy this book, and I want to tell you how to buy it. I want you to look at her website, www.nikkimurphy, that's N-I-K-K-I hyphen Murphy, Murphy spelled phonetically, dot com. And I want you to order it from her website, not from Amazon, because when you order it from her website, um, it's directly from her, all the authors and people out there know. It's good to be on Amazon and accessible, but you're back to working for a company at a reduced commission as opposed to getting it all yourself. So when I Thank called you, you about this, uh, I ordered mine right away, and you sent me an autographed copy, which was lovely, and you wrote me a beautiful note. It said, Kevin Spann, <laughs> keep inspiring. You're built to withstand Nikki Murphy. And that's powerful. You know, one, thank you for the inspirational message. Oh, Number welcome. two, your handwriting is, is fabulous. That's <laughs> smooth. <laughs> if I had a book, I couldn't autograph it uh, that neatly and, and that message. So, so thank you. So let's talk about thank it. Thank you. Okay. So you want me to read this poem, Dear Diary, I'm Having a Panic Attack? Yeah, because, and the reason I want you to read that one is because of the pandemic time, admittedly or unadmittedly, Everybody can use some time on somebody's couch. Yeah. Everybody can use some time on somebody's couch talking about what they felt. And everybody needs to process what they Mm -hmm. what they felt in this. And that's part of changing the narrative as well. So I just want to get into depth with those panic attacks and what you felt. Okay. Dear diary, I'm having a panic attack. My mind tried to kill me last night. I know it doesn't make sense because you don't know how this feels like the last time that was like the last time that was like the first time he left me. The devil ignites tears, 
tantrums, wild punches, a radical escape from everyone. There is just me and my mind trying to kill the object I worshipped, a facade, stupid. The whiz was just a man, stupid. And I was just a fan, stupid. God, I wish I was home. Oh yeah, I wrote this poem. Oh my, I was trying to capture a lot. I suffered with depression uh, from when I was a child. Uh, I would say around middle school and high school, it began to really come to a head for me. And it always was surrounding a guy breaking my heart or something of that nature. And I would just like completely lose it and feel like I don't even want to be here. What is my purpose? And people are not going to, no one will ever love me. And I realized that that probably was a father wound. Right. You know? But um, it took a lot, you know, I, I, we don't, we didn't do or have access to therapy um, then at that time. And I wouldn't have even welcomed that anyway at that time. Um, but it took me a while, at, you know, dealing with a lot of things, you know, as work and, and having a baby. When I had those panic attacks, you know, I started seeing a therapist. Thank God. Yes. And it really helps me to, um, one, learn techniques yes. when I have this, like, emotional flooding. Yes. Where you just kind of, like I would tell my therapist, I just spiral. Yes. Like, I get, when I get sad, I spiral. And she's like, bring it back to the present. Here are some things you can do so that, you know, what your mind is doing is it recalls all of the past times you felt that way. And it can flood you with all of these emotions. Your body just remembers all of that. And I have a poem in there about the body remembering, too, because she made me realize that your body holds on to a lot of yes. the trauma that yes. you've been through. And so that flooding happens, but then you just have to have a technique to bring you back to the present moment so that you know all of that is not happening <coughs> and kind of retrain your brain. And you have that technique now, so mm -hmm. when you're near your triggers, you can go to that place. Yes. That's one of the benefits of therapy. So we've talked a lot about our community in this. Mm -hmm. Other communities embrace therapy. Our community, it's always talk to the pastor. And mm -hmm. the pastor may not be a therapist. It may not have that information for you. How is having those coping techniques and those tools, how has that helped you? It's helped me a lot. One, the techniques have helped me in the moment to not like go too deep or stay in a dark place for a long time, right? So the techniques have helped me in that way. But then also just talking through and realizing how things are connected and how, you know, life is complicated. Very. Life is complicated. A lot of times you're like, um, once you make these connections, it's been easier for me to process things as they happen to me because I know what's being triggered and right. why. Right. So I can kind of disengage from it. Right. So I think the more that I learn about myself and my history and what things trigger me and why they trigger me because of because of these things and I either can avoid or I can go into situations better prepared or be able to quickly um, uh, get back to like rebound from some of these things because I know the context and I'm now an observant I'm observing myself going through this and can like talk myself down versus just living in it and feeling like I'm out of control, right? It's like I can step back and see 
what's happening and why. And I still struggle through, through things. It's part and, of it. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it never gets, it uh, is, right? there, there's no such places there where we arrive right. where healed. healed or <laughs> where life uh, just gets easy. Yeah. It, it's not, there's not a financial solution mm. for it. There's not a no. dollar figure for it. Um, and you talked about something really important about what our body feels. You know, mm-hmm. we all want to put a good smile on, a good corporate yes. face. What's up? It's all good. Everything good with you? Yes, yes, yes. Everyone wants to project it's all good. But a lot of times those suppressed feelings, we process physically in so many ways oh, that yes. people aren't even conscious of. Absolutely. I learned that, too, in therapy. Like, when I went in there and... You know, I tell them, like, what I'm doing, how I'm doing at work, and, like, what's going on in my life and my emotions. And they're like, you're like a master comp- compartmentalizer. And I'm yes. like, I yes. am. So it's yes. like, yeah, you can, you know, stuff all of this stuff in the closet. You've not dealt with any of this stuff, yes. but you're still successful in doing all of these things in this other tract. And so I'm just like, okay. So, I, you know, that's it's, it's one thing, you know, we may think of it as, like, a positive, And it is positive that I'm able to function and, and excel um, in this way, but then realizing that I need to actually deal with this stuff to stop having these like big explode because that's it's going to come out. Yes, it has to come yes. out. Yes, so, yes, yeah, it's so going to happen. It's like either you come out and you deal with it in a more productive way, where you're not exploding or having these huge meltdowns, and um, that can look like regular therapy, that can look like journaling or whatever you have to do to process things as they happen, or you can ignore it and then. You know, you're on the roof somewhere, yeah. and and that's not a good place to be. And I, I've, I've not been on the roof, but I've been there where I've... And your thought processes, yeah. where, you, where you've thought about it. How therapeutic was writing the book and just getting mm-hmm. all of these years of, of, of feelings? Oh, it was so therapeutic. And actually, I think that um, it's, it's funny because I it, it, it felt so good to get this stuff down on paper. And then also because it's like... It was so painful, but then it's now art, right? And yes. it's now something beautiful yes. to me, at least. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> but, it's beautiful to me. Go ahead. Yes. I want to continue your butt first. Go ahead. But yeah, it's it's so to have it be, you know, tra- it's like alchemy, right? Like I'm transforming this into something else, and it's like, wow, all of this pain, all of this emotions are now this, and this is something I love and can talk about and can stand behind. So I, I love that about it, and it was very. Um, cathartic to do to do this whole thing it was it was it was a lot it also brought up a lot of things that I had to deal with yes um so that was helpful and a lot of this came out of like I started therapy and then a lot of these memories and things were also coming up that I need to deal with and wrote about so well you're you're heavily tapped into both sides of your brain on the one Mm -hmm. sense you're this great student, yeah, financial, type a, like science, analytic, yeah, all of that stuff. <laughs> yes. But this is incredibly creative, and your your writing style is, is beautiful. I read the haikus. I Thank read the other you. things. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, yes. um, but it's just it's an incredible book. I want to encourage everybody to get it. Um, this podcast will probably drop the week before Christmas. This is a wonderful gift, yes. gentlemen, the ladies in your life. This book. Mm-hmm. Ladies, this book, book clubs, this book. This is the book that I want you to get. Fathers, get it. Get to know your daughters because it's it's rich. Your journey, your arrangement of your chapters, it's your childhood, deep in your college years, your corporate experience, and now this experience. 
There's a level of depth in these in this book that I did not touch upon mm-hmm. by design. Some okay. things that ladies go through um, that I did not touch upon by design. Uh, so, last question I'm actually about the book that we're going to talk about you as a real estate investor and a new business venture that's coming up. Okay. Where does the title come from? Home for Hurricanes. Ooh, so I um I use this metaphor to talk about myself. So I do have a picture of myself on the cover and. Um, I felt like, you know, I was the master compartmentalizer, right? So I was the home for all of these hurricanes that wow. were happening inside of So this is a look into, um, you know, that home and what that was like for me and the hurricanes that existed within myself. So uh, it's the title, it's the cover art, it's um, all of it. So I organized the book into four chapters, home, um, closets, hurricanes, uh, and rebuilding so that you can go on the journey from home, which is like my childhood upbringing, a lot of wine dance stories in there, um, then to closets, the things we don't talk about, like that poem, The Panic Attacks, and, and things of that nature, and then hurricanes, which are like the crux of it, and trigger warning for sexual assault as well. So it talks about all of these like hard things were, that really, you know, could have broke me. And then the rebuilding, which is the longest chapter, and obviously it's the longest process in life, right, is picking yourself up and um, healing, going on that healing journey. So, I I, I, I love it. And I <laughs> it, it would be appropriate to close here, but it would be incomplete. And I love <laughs> you under, you explaining how you compartmentalize it. So, so people, y'all know what I do for a living, hurricanes insurance. Hurricane insurance. <laughs> that's what I'm. That's what I'm thinking. That's where my yes. brain goes. But no, we're talking a, a internal storm. Yes, internal storm. And I think you've done a good job. The art is incredible. The writing is incredible. Um, I want the diverse group of friends that I have, my black friends, my white friends, my male friends, my female friends, to get this book because there's a level of depth in here. Mm-hmm. That also gets to understanding diversity, inclusion, and maybe seeing some things from a different perspective than you've seen it from before. Because I know there's some great poets in, in history and stuff like that we haven't read. But this is right now. This yeah. is this is written in 2020. It's what we're all experiencing right now. So I think it's completely relatable. Um, again, uh, this will be dropping right for Crystal. Please pay attention. Um, I network with a lot of realtors, and you are a real estate investor. Talk about real estate investing. Talk about how you got into it. Okay, so back during that sabbatical, 2017, there was a house that went up for auction, and it happened to be a house. My husband was watching these auctions. We hadn't um, decided to invest, but we'd uh, been interested in real estate, and he was looking at it more actively, like watching auctions and things. And so he left up on the computer one day I just happened to walk by the computer and there was an image of a house that I grew up playing in, right? It was a house across the street from where my house is that I grew up in, in Wyandanche. And so I saw the house and I'm like, I know that house. I've been in that house. That was like the rich kids on the blocks house, yes. right? So, you know, the, the <laughs> ones that had all the Jordans, everything. I was like, I've been in that house. That house is so, you know, like we have and to And yes, there are rich kids in Wyandanche. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes. I was like, we have to get this house. Um, and so he was like, oh, yeah, I was looking. The auction is on Tuesday. And I was like, no, it's actually Monday. So we almost missed the auction. So we went to the auction. Um, me, him, and Jaden, you know, I didn't have childcare or anything. We were all home. 
And so we're there with the stroller at this auction on the steps and contractors are there. Like no other like regular people. So we're just the only regular people. We took out our last of $10,000 that we had in the bank. Again, he Wait. was out of work at that time and I was also... <coughs> um, you know, and the sabbatical. So I was, uh, we were not financially in a position to be able to do this, but we, you know, we did have faith. We prayed about it. We went, um, and we said, we have this $10,000 check. You have to have 10% down. So we were like, if this house goes for more than a hundred thousand, we can't do anything, but you know, that'll be our cap. We went auction. Everyone was bidding. We won the auction. We didn't get anywhere close. We got it to 83,000 or so. Yeah, we got it. And, um, we were like, oh crap, we we got it. And you have to come up with the rest of the money in 30 days. We did what we had to do to take out loans and things to get the rest of the money to make it happen, finance the the refurbish on our credit cards. And then once it got up in equity because we built it back up, then um we were able to uh put a mortgage on it and get that money back out. So on the after rental value. So that was good. And then we just kept reinvesting in more houses over the years. So you got a portfolio. Yeah. Now we have a portfolio. So it all started with that one though, and going there and doing it and just figuring out things as we went, which, you know, is mostly my husband is like good for that. I like to have a plan. I got it. Before we go into anything. That's the side. That's everybody has (laughs) to play their role in a relationship. Yes, it's true. Now, speaking of your husband, we have yes. a new business venture. Are we okay to talk about that? Yes, we are. So um, my husband and uh, his partner, uh, a his cousin actually, both black men, um, are opening a seafood restaurant. Let's go. Yes. Very excited about it. Bait and Hook L.I. It is located in West Hempstead, 687 Woodfield Road. Um it should be open by the time this airs. We're yes. for a grand opening in November of 2021. Oh, perfect. Yeah, so um, check us out, Bait and Hook LI. Uh, we are just fish and chips. It's takeout spot, you know, Uber Eats, do whatever you got to do. Come out and support. Uh, we're very excited. My husband is a chef. He's trained Culinary Institute, Le Cordon Bleu in Let's Atlanta. Go. Yeah, so he's worked in kitchens, Del Frisco, all the big steakhouses in New York City, and is now um, opening his own spot, and, you know, we are investing in that and hoping that pays off um, amazingly. So that's our newest venture. I, I love it. I saw the picture. I think you posted that yesterday. Yes. Bait and Hook LI. Only takeout or sit down as well? There's just a few tables for sit down. There's, a few tables for sit down. mostly takeout. Okay. I love it. Bait and Hook Culinary cha- Train. Yes. We need that. We need yes. that. We love seafood. Cannot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot wait to get there to show love and show support. Uh, Nikki, this has been incredible. Thank incredible. You. A whole lot of fun uh, talking to you about this, getting to know you better, yes. uh, hearing you perform the poem, just like everything in the world. Um, I know we're here. I know you're marketing and blowing this book up. Tell the people what's next for Nikki Murphy. Tell everybody where they can find you at and, you know, what, you, what you're up to. Okay, so I am also speaking. So I'm a speaker. I do um, speak on diversity and inclusion topics as well as resilience and purposeful living. So that's something that I am doing as well in addition to promoting Still Her for Hurricanes, which is available in all formats, including audiobook, which I recorded earlier this year. Um, 
And then from there, too, I'm also creating artwork. I have prints and, and other things, launching an e-commerce site. So very exciting news. Follow me. Um, I'm on Instagram, uh, Facebook. I'm most active on Instagram, but all of my handles are at MRS, Mrs. Nikki, N-I-K-K-I, Murphy. So you can find me on all the social media channels. And I would love to interact with you and uh, stay connected. I love it. I love it. I think you're uh, incredible uh, corporate folks, real estate network, corporate network. Tap in, tap into her to have some conversations. We're still growing as a country, working around some issues. Um, so wonderful person to bring into your offices and your agencies for some conversation. Um and I think she'll be dynamic. So I strongly endorse you. I strongly recommend you and uh, everything that you do. And I have an idea that I can't wait to execute. <laughs> yes. That's it. Wind down All with right. Kev. Thank everybody for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, click on the YouTube link below. Click subscribe. Hit the notifications button. And definitely follow Nikki everywhere that she's at. Peace.